This is Learn It From An 80s Song. I am your coach, Patricia Freiberg. This is I Love the 80s meets the healing of storytelling and the positive impact of music. Inspiring guests share their powerful stories, yielding incredible strengths. Through both story and music, this podcast will elevate your mood, providing you with a positive outlook. It will ignite recall so that you can tap into your own life experiences. We don't just hear the knowledge and wisdom gained from our podcast guests. Through powerful story, we can live it. Today, we have a very special guest. Please welcome Dr. Karen Gedney. Dr. Gedney is an internal medicine specialist who spent 30 years behind bars as a prison physician. She was designated as one of the best in the business by American Correctional Association and won a Heroes for Humanity Award for her work in HIV in the correctional system. She left the prison in 2016 and has chosen to use her time as an author, speaker, and mentor to advocate for prison reform. She is the author of the book, 30 Years Behind Bars. She currently is the medical director for Ridge House in Reno, which offers transitional housing and wraparound medical and psychological services for individuals involved in the criminal justice system. Dr. Gedney, it is so amazing to have you here today. Thank you so much for being here on the show. And I love that I get to talk with you again, Patricia. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Gedney and I uh, met each other at a Bo Eason event where we were working on our personal stories and public speaking. And I will never forget when Dr. Gedney came up on stage she said her one true sentence, which was like one line from her public speaking. And I got goosebumps. And I thought to myself, I need to know this woman and I need to go find her and invite her to lunch. So I think we ended up maybe if not that day or the next day, we ended up having lunch together. And I'm very excited to have you as a friend and colleague. And I, I have so much respect for you and all that you do. And I just can't be more grateful than to have you here on the show. Thank you, Patricia. This is a great treat for me. Super. So this is the part of the show that we have the big reveal as to what song we're going to be talking about today from the 80s. So can I get a drum roll, please? Dr. Gedney, what is the song that best resonates with the story you're going to tell us today? Well, I have to say, I looked at so many 80s songs, and Michael Jackson had an ungodly amount of songs during the 80s, but the one that resonated me was Man in the Mirror. Yes, beautiful song. And that's Michael Jackson, certainly king of pop all over the 80s. Um, and this song in particular came out in 1988. Now, the lyrics and the music were by Glenn Ballard and Seda Garrett. It was produced by Jackson and Quincy Jones. Now, this particular 
song hit uh, three times platinum, and it was nominated for Record of the Year. So you guys are in for a treat. Dr. Gedney, would you uh, share your story with us? Well, my story, uh, it's interesting when you talk about the 80s, because when I look at the 80s, I realize, wow, I spent 1980 starting four years of medical school, then three years of internal medicine residency. Then it was 1987. And in May, I got married to my soulmate, Clifton Macklin. And two months later, I was sent to prison. (laughs) (laughs) And I always like to shock people with that. And I was sent to prison by the uh, National Health Service Corps to do a payback for a scholarship I had received. And and I must say, I would have never thought that uh, my payback would be sent to a male medium security prison on the outskirts of uh, Carson City in northern Nevada. And, uh, and then a year and a half later, I was taken hostage and lived through quite an ordeal. And so the 80s, for all sorts of reasons, are touch points in my life. And my career as a prison doctor, I could have left after four years, and I made the decision uh, to really stay and turn it into my calling. And when you look at the song I picked, Man in the Mirror, there's a lot of different uh, nuances in that song that just, I don't know, resonated with me. And one was, uh, if you want to change the world, look at yourself first. Mm. And I realized for myself that if I really wanted to heal, there was no better place for me to stay than in a place where you have, let's say, the most, some of the most dysfunctional and broken people and forgotten people mm. that the United States tosses into the system. And, and I realized now I could have left after four years, but uh, if I wanted to be the type of healer I wanted to be, then I should stay against all the odds. And I turned it into my calling. And on top of it, I also, when I would hear that song about look at yourself, I thought more than anything, if the uh, inmates wanted to really change their lives instead of always pointing to someone else or some situation, they really had to look at themselves. So it had two different meanings for me when I listened to that song. Yes. So both from the perspective of being the prison doctor and then also from the perspective of the prisoners and and what they the work that they had to do when they were there. Right. And I'm an internal medicine specialist. And when I look back on it, when I entered the prison in 1987, it was really the height of the AIDS epidemic. And When you, and a lot of people sort of forget about HIV because now COVID has been for the last you know, year just decimated on the TV every single day. Yes. But people who grew up in the 80s, or let's say who were on the front line, like I was on the front line, you never forget that. And, uh, and also, it brought up that song, We Are the World, 
you know, yeah. which was right, Jackson and Quincy and you know, Lionel Richie, yes, all those yep, different it, yeah. people singing. And it was a time when HIV people, I had many inmates die from HIV. Oh, and wow. I had, and in that day, when I started in July of 87, we didn't have any drug, any treatment whatsoever. And Nevada was very bizarrely unique as a prison system in that it tested every single inmate in the state in 1985 when the test wow. came out. You know, one of the few prison systems in the entire country. And so when I was uh, plopped in the prison, they said, oh, uh, you've got 120 AIDS patients. And I, and I had no idea, you know, <laughs> what to do with all these right. individuals when we didn't have any medications. And the prison had decided to test everyone, had no idea what to do with that information. You see what I mean? It's, yes. it's typical yes. state bureaucracies. They do something. And then there's no game plan afterwards, right? Right. And uh, I ended up forming the first HIV support group. I ended wow. up actually becoming literally a national expert in corrections in HIV. And uh, when the drugs came out, I was speaking for drug companies at that time because nobody knew anything. Wow. And I just had an unusual opportunity where one of the first drug companies wanted to detail me on their drug. And I was kidding around with them. And I said, well, how do I become a speaker? And they said, oh, really? Do you want to do that? Yes. <laughs> and then I was like, well, yes, because I want to know what's going on. And uh, people forget that in those days, even doctors were ostracized, run out of you know, their town if they took care of AIDS patients. That's how bad it was in those days. Wow. Um, wow. You know, I'm thinking about this, Karen, as you're talking, and you have, of all the years that you were there, you were really in the thick of the 80s and what was happening from the medical forefront as far as AIDS and HIV. And that was before AZT came out, correct? Right. So correct. it was, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm just thinking about your career path and how you had mentioned you had this, you know, work calling. You know, you, at first you go into the prison system. You're like, all right, I'll do this. I'll get payback on my loans. Next thing you know, you know, you, you went through the trauma where you were held hostage. And then you said that was about a year and a half into it. Yes. And then yet you continued. Right. You continued. And stayed there for how many years? 30. Exactly. 30 years. Incredible. Incredible. And then through that time, how many people you've impacted and all of like, you know, what you were saying, not only, you know, are you, did you do internal medicine, you know, but you also had to help with medications for, you know, mental illness or emotional behavioral uh, issues. And then as well as AIDS and HIV. So you really had to know the gamut of medicine for the prisoners. And, and you were the only one, right? You were the only prison yes. doctor? Yeah. yeah. And how many inmates? One. Initially, I was the only one. And then later, years later, I got uh, another doctor because the prison population just exploded. Uh, and I was also at, let's say, the height of um, the growth in prisons. Most people don't understand this, but Around the late 1970s, we were sort of like the rest of the world in terms of incarceration. 
And then in the late 70s, it just started going up like crazy. In fact, the prison population literally quadrupled and quintupled, you know, four to five times more where no other country, no other industrialized country had that. And this is why the United States got the, let's say, moniker of the mass incarcerator of the world. And when people look back at like, wow, how did this happen? It was a combination of things like uh, the war on drugs, which other countries didn't go bonkers over. Mm -hmm. It was the mandatory minimums, which means that, you know, if you do a certain crime, no matter what the judge says or extenuating circumstances, you get a minimum 10 to life. I'll give you an example, just how crazy some of that stuff was. You get an 18-year-old boy and you have a young son, right? You have an 18-year-old boy and he uh, is at a party and he basically picks up a a 15-year-old girl who looks like 18 and uh, has sex with her. And then gets and the parents of the girl charge him and he gets charged as a sex offender. He is given 10 to life in prison. Mandatory. Wow. Mandatory. Okay. And then on top of it, when he leaves, he has a sex felon stamp on him the rest of his life. You know, when you have things like that going on. That is not what mandatory minimums were really designed for, but they do things emotionally and then it it takes them forever and it still hasn't been corrected. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And then you would have the dilemmas of the DUI drivers, you know, the individuals Mm -hmm. who are alcohol, they have alcohol in their system. And the federal government reduced the blood alcohol level. In fact, State prisons in states were told uh, we're dropping the level to 0.08 blood alcohol level. And if you don't prosecute at that, you do not get any federal money. You see what I mean? Oh, wow. Okay. So that means you could be a person who maybe is a lightweight. You have two glasses of wine at dinner. Right. And you could, and you're not impaired yourself, but- Half the people could be impaired at 0.08. You drive and then you get in an accident. And if they find alcohol in your system and you kill in in an accident occurs and you kill two people, you have a 20 year sentence. Wow. You know, I knew a firefighter in my prison who had like a 0.08, you know, from drinking two glasses of wine or something. And his car spun out on the ice hit a family where all five people were killed and he got 50 years in prison. Wow. With no possibility of parole, you see, right? It's just a 50 flat. And and when you see things like that, so the prison population went up. And then um, when Reagan really shut down the institutions, the mentally ill hospitals, you had a lot of mentally ill end up on the street and they did behavior that ended them up in prisons. So there was such a like a like a perfect storm that made mm-hmm. the prison population go up like crazy. Yes. In fact, when I started in the prison, my prison yard had a certain amount of people and I was the only doctor. And then just imagine, you know, it had its little culinary, its uh, little shop, you know, things like that. But on that yard, 
they ended up building a 120-bed hospital that the entire state funneled into. Then they built two other large units. So all of a sudden, you have another, let's say, five, 600 people on the prison yard, but none of the other ancillary services were increased. Right. You see what I mean, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. And that's the type of thing when they talk about overcrowding. Uh, and one of the other things I took care of that almost no prison doctor ever took care of was I had specific training. So I took care of all the cancer patients in the state. So I did the chemotherapy. Wow. Oh, so then you were an oncologist on top of yeah, being a psychiatrist yeah. and an internal medicine doctor yeah, and infectious disease. <laughs> right. Yeah. All, all of that. And, we quadruple aborted. <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up, you know, I had training in oncology and then I was blessed with one of my nurses was a, a chemo certified nurse because mm. you have to have a nurse who's certified to really run those drugs. Yes. And then I ended up sitting on uh, the hospital board, the tumor board for a hospital. So I had access to the best oncologists, and they really wanted nothing to do with the inmates. So, you know, we would discuss the case in these meetings, and then I would put it all into motion because I made the diagnosis, presented everything. You know, it's almost like a cookbook in terms of what you do, you know. Wow. And, uh, And then we ran the chemo in the prison. And that meant we had to deal with all the guys who were dying. Yes. Right. And uh, and then we pushed for a hospice unit that took forever. In fact, it didn't actually come into true fruition until I left. That's how many years it took to get a hospice unit in that prison. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And when they they invited me back in because I'd spent for decades trying to get that going. Yes. Yes. And does it have your namesake on it? No, 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 no. no. That very much was, uh, that actually very much was related also to a a female associate warden and a female psychologist in me. We were really behind it. And and I will point out to your audience, because I know probably a lot of women listen to your podcast. Yes. Yes. A lot of women. And I will say that the women who entered the prison and were and survived were some of the greatest positive changers for a male prison system. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, we I had 10 prison directors, only one was a female, and she was incredibly progressive. She started the uh, puppies on parole program, which was oh. unbelievably great for the guys. Like pet therapy. Started the Mustang program, the wild Mustang program. And in fact, it was so famous that a couple of years ago, they even did a movie called Mustang, which they filmed at the old prison. Oh, wow. Uh, She started the uh, first geriatric program in the prison called Senior Structured Living Program. They called it True Grit because you have all these old guys, they have so lengthy sentences. So you have these 70, 80, 90 year old guys, and they can't compete with the youngsters, you know, on the yard. But she could see this coming. And she, this female prison director had a, a female psychologist and me sort of like push this. So they had a unit where we would have old guys. And then those old guys, they couldn't really work. So 
they had a structured program where they did crafts and knitted and crocheted and you know, wow. did the little wheelchair exercises and everything. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. What an and incredible it was really team. The women who were more to me, they had more flexible mindset. The men were very oriented for that mil- militaristic hierarchical mm-hmm. type of rigid thinking. And also they were far more into punishment and shame than women were. Women statistically, they still have a piece of that nurturing, but also they see a a more holistic picture. 100%. Yeah. I just was thinking back. I used to work in a juvenile detention center uh, back when I was an art therapist, just finishing up college. And I remember the males, and this was in Alabama and uh, where, you know, the kids were shackled and, you know, going into courtrooms and, and, I remember doing art therapy with them. And when it was time for them to disclose anything or share, you know, I really wanted it to be more in a one-on-one setting, but I couldn't be alone with them, right? Right. So there was definitely this push-pull between the drill sergeants and me trying to help them and be able to help them talk about their feelings, but then yet having this drill sergeant that was very much about keeping in order and and having things be a certain way. And uh, so I can imagine thinking back to that, what it must be like for you guys in an all-male prison for long sentences, like you had said. And, you know, one of the things you bring up about wanting to do and help and care, and then the custody side that has very security-oriented and they have these fears that something's going to happen. So with my hostage incident, Mm -hmm. what had happened is I really wanted to, um, to help the inmate population and I truly cared about them. And the thing is, one of the downsides is that if you have men who have been cooped up for a long, long time and you care about them, then they start projecting their emotions on you, like, oh, you're the one for me sort of thing, right? Right, okay. right. And, and that's a fine line to, to mm. walk. And uh, so I had, a, and I was only there a year and a half, so I was sort of naive about all sorts of stuff. And this guy, I realized he was getting too close to me. And I made a mistake in that I thought, well, he's incredibly bright. He understands this is transference. Yes, you know, yes. Right? I mean, he understood this concept. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I am not going to be counter-transference. Right. I have a line and this is that. And he, because he was had a high intellect, his IQ was actually over 170. Okay? Wow. Because in the old days, they used to test things like that. And I thought, okay, well, he understands this intellectually. So... And I knew he was sitting on that edge, but I did not tell custody, hey, this guy is getting a little bit too close. And that's because at that time, custody, I didn't trust custody Mm -hmm. because they, I had an incident where I had a similar type of guy get too close. And I told them that, hey, this guy, this was a mentally ill guy. (laughs) This guy was truly mentally ill. I was like, "Mm." he's starting to think I'm like his ex-wife. And he's right. writing me the most bizarre things, you know. So I told mm-hmm. custody, this, yes. this guy is not quite right and he's doing this. 
Well, what they did was they beat him up and threw him in a higher security prison. Okay. And in that one didn't make me trust that they would do appropriate things. And then on top of it, they had um, created investigations on me that I was like an inmate lover, right? Like okay. I cared too much and therefore right. I was a horrible security risk and da, da, da. And, uh, and all of that made me cautious about telling them mm-hmm. about this particular guy. And then yes. they took me hostage. Right. Then I was assaulted and raped and they got me out with a SWAT team and all that sort of stuff happened. And afterwards, I had to basically, one, get over the shock. But two, I realized I really had to look at myself as, as you know, what I could change, maybe. Yes. But, uh, the thing that was a wake up call for me and I, I never shared in that personal power event that you listened to, was that about two weeks later, I get a call and uh, and I didn't realize this. This is an old lady on the phone and she goes, oh, Dr. Gedney, I'm so sorry Kenny took you hostage. That was his mother, the inmate's mother calling me Called on the you. phone that somehow the prison had let through. I don't know what operator let that through because right. that shouldn't happen in a prison, no. right? And this old lady, because he was 50, she had to be in her 70s or something. This old lady was saying, oh, I'm so glad he didn't hurt you. Okay, because I didn't say anything to newspapers, right? Right. I just, and then the prison was like, well, she got hostage and then she went back to work the next day, basically, you know. Yes. And you did. You yeah, went back to work right. the next so, day. So so this lady's saying, and I'm glad he didn't hurt you. And then out of my mouth came, no, he just assaulted and raped me. That's all. That, that's what came out of my mouth. Wow. You see? Yes. To this mother. To this yes. mother. Old lady. Yes. And she started crying. And I felt horrible right horrible and and then i realized it i i realized okay karen you spend all your life taking care of hurt people that then hurt others and now you're in the spot where you've been hurt and you just hurt this old lady yeah yeah (laughs) right who all what she wanted was comfort right yeah 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 and uh, and that gave me my wake-up call about uh having to get over it and also having to forgive so I could get on with everything. Right. Yes. Which is where that man in the mirror comes in. Yeah. Wow. Incredible story. And I would love to um, share with you, Dr. Gedney, some of the strengths. So as you know, I'm certified in um, strengths assessments uh, through the college of executive coaching and some of the strengths. Uh, so the VIA strengths, guys, uh, audience, if you haven't taken the VIA strengths assessment, I highly recommend taking it so that you can learn really, it describes who you are to your core. So when you take this assessment, you'll get a readout of how, of your top strengths. And with that, you'll know what strengths you can use to help you get through obstacles, what strengths do you use uh, most often on a regular basis that light you up? And, you know, and these are signature to you uh, in particular, and everybody has a very different readout of all of their strengths. And there's 24 of them. 
Now, this is not to say that these 24 strengths, you only have the first few. No, you actually have all of these 24 strengths, but it's really how you show up in the world. Which strengths do you use most often? And, you know, knowing uh, Dr. Gedney um, and then knowing uh, your story and, uh, and, and she has a book. So I highly recommend everybody getting Dr. Gedney's book. How do we get a hold of your book? Well, the book is 30 Years Behind Bars, mm-hmm. Trials of a Prison Doctor, and it's on Amazon. That's the best way to get it. And it's also Kindle and Audible. And I do the Audible, though I'm told it's not the most incredible Audible because you hear sometimes a page or something yeah. like that because someone else you know, did the, uh, the work on it. And uh, they can also get it through my website, which is discoverdrg.com. And then they can check out my blogs and things like that. But um, that's great. So you're going to see as you read her book and as you've heard your story, I'm going to spot strengths in Dr. Gedney right now. And I'm going to tell you which ones I see and I hear. And actually, I picked up another one as you were talking today. So I, I had your top five, but I'm actually going to make it six. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> okay. I'm curious. All right. Like, so, so if I tell me if I'm, I'm somewhat close. And um, so the first one I have is bravery. And that is with the virtue of courage. And what this is, is about not shrinking to threat or challenge or difficulty and speaking up for what is right. So you could hear as Dr. Gedney was talking, how passionate she is about prison rights and about the prisoners. And also, you know that she experienced trauma at the prison. And yet the very next day, she got up and she went back to work. And that is about bravery, courage. Also, with this one in particular, science shows that it actually builds resilience when challenges are overcome. So you can only imagine how resilient Dr. Gedney is after what she had experienced and also experienced throughout her entire career as as having to be on the forefront of all of these medical conditions and um, including the AIDS epidemic. Number two, I would say uh, social intelligence. So she alluded to the countertransference and transference that she was speaking of. A lot of that in uh, the, the therapeutic process uh, has a lot to do with being able to monitor your own feelings simultaneously to monitoring your client's feelings at the same time or patient's feelings at the same time. So this is being aware of motives and feelings of other people. And then you understand what makes people tick. And you can also read a room. So when you walk into a situation, you can identify exactly how you're going to need to maneuver within this social situation or work situation. So that's social intelligence. Um, And that's under humanity. So that's under the virtue of humanity. Next, we have judgment and critical thinking. So you can imagine, especially identifying, you know, dosages for chemotherapy, diagnosing, looking at the AIDS epidemic, looking at you know how they can help when there's really no treatment, looking at even the social emotional of the inmates, and really understanding what's, what's best for them. And 
Um, so judgment and critical thinking is thinking things through and examining and examining them from all sides. It's also known as the corrective uh, virtue. And people with judgment and critical thinking, they're not easily manipulated, which means in the transference, counter-transference, uh, within the therapeutic process, she's going to have a little bit more awareness and not fall into some of the boundary issues that occur within that. So, and that will link, that links really well with her uh, social emotional uh, intelligence. And forgiveness. So, forgiveness, I could almost put as number one. Um, so, it's either that you had to lean into forgiveness. And, you know, even if it's in your lesser strengths, for me, it's in my lesser strengths. So I have to really lean into it. For you, it feels like it's pretty incredible how forgiving you are as a person. So forgiving those uh, who have wronged you pretty much and um, accepting shortcomings of others and, um, you know, giving people second chances. It's also associated, and I have this uh, earmarked here in this book, and I use this, uh, this is Dr. Nemec's book on uh, character strengths interventions for via strengths. Uh, so I like to look at the research behind things. And uh, for this one, it says forgiveness is associated with physical and psychological health benefits, such as emotional well-being, healthy lifestyle behaviors, which we're going to have another episode uh, that we'll be talking about that uh, with Dr. Gedney. And uh, healthy, yeah, so I said healthy lifestyle behaviors, social support, and spiritual well-being. People who are forgiving experience less anger and anxiety, depression, and hostility than less forgiving people. So finally, I have two more to go here. Perseverance, and I think you guys can all hear that because she got up and she went to work the next day after experiencing a trauma. And also look at persevering in with the inmates throughout her career, given all of, and especially through the 80s, and anyone, guys, who's gone through medical training, I'm married to an oncologist, let me tell you the amount of... Pers I was with him, I've been with my husband since he was in med school, so I certainly see it and know it well, what it takes and to be a doctor and and especially in the past, I feel like things have gotten a maybe a touch better um, as there's been more class action <laughs> suits right. and things like that. But um, I would say that uh, perseverance is is courage, the virtue of courage, and um, and it's finishing what you started, persisting despite obstacles. So it could be persisting on a particular task or for a long dur duration or both. Uh, and it's connected to achievement, which you can imagine. Finally, the one that I uh, put in there is gratitude. And here's why I picked gratitude as I heard Dr. Gedney talking. She talked about work as being a calling. And people who practice gratitude, they actually see their work as a calling. And they are called to their jobs. And so it, that's what was so uh, fascinating to hear you talk. Because I was like, yep, gratitude's got to be right up there. So, um, so, all right. So how did I do? <laughs> it sounds like I should get sainthood. <laughs> you should. I think you should. That's why you're here. <laughs> but, but a lot of those things are, are true. And, uh, and I think, um, 
you know, part of it is very much related to my mother, who was mm-hmm. a survivor of the Second World War. And, and also, I think just the way my brain is wired. Yes. Uh, it's wired a bit more on the pragmatic sense than the highly emotional sense. So to me, when people say, oh, wow, you forgave and this and that, to me, it's more well, it makes pragmatic sense to me to do that. You see what I mean? Yeah, right. I do. You see, not like I'm some, you know, special person. It's more, well, it's it's like when people say, wow, you can, you know, you're, you're still the same weight you were, whatever, you know, when you were in high school. And, and I, and I will, I'm like, well, it, it's pragmatic to me to keep my weight low because I have so much, uh, let's say, I have, I have arthritis from all the sports activities I did yes. when I was younger that I want to keep my weight low and my muscles strong just because of that. It, to me, it's all pragmatic, you know? Yes. Yes. So interesting. And I think that with uh, that is the judgment and uh, critical thinking, you know, having that wisdom as well, I feel like that could play into those as well. The pragmatic and prudence and prudence. That's another uh, strength I would put up there. Something about high social intelligence. I I will say that when I grew up, I was about as shy and introverted (laughs) as you could get. But I think also that piece of realizing I had to get, I had to improve that. I think also led me to be a doctor because then people are coming to me, right? Yeah. Versus me imposing on them. But then when you're easier, you just learn to understand people because you have to try to understand them so you can help them. Right. So it's uh, it works for me. I love that you're bringing this up because, you know, how I'd mentioned with the via strengths, all 24 are present within us. And sometimes our lesser strengths are just strengths that we haven't leaned into, but we can continue to adapt and continue to increase. They may not change in the order because your top strengths are very much your top strengths. But what you can do is develop those lesser strengths a little more. And um, and I think that you bring up a great point that uh, social intel, like for instance, I've got uh, perspective and curiosity is like number five and six for me. And what I've been trying to do is, you know, really look at perspective, especially with my coaching clients, like how can I use that strength a little more? And I feel that just by practicing that it's going to get a little, I'll get to, you know, it'll increase and it'll be part of my overall makeup and a nice balance so that I can use those strengths a little more. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, and also, you know, when I would look at my inmate population, who many times had really poor self-worth. And of course, the bottom line is, if you don't have that type self-worth, it's very, it's impossible to have worth, to look at other people and consider that they have worth. And that's what makes them dangerous in a society if you don't help them believe in themselves that they have worth. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So with that, I'd love for you to share with an action item for our audience. Like how can, you know, given your story and your amazing book um, that everybody needs to get, can you tell us an action item um, that would be beneficial? For me, uh, the action 
item would be to be far more curious than judgmental in any type of um, incident or situation that you're involved in. And then always give the uh, benefit of the doubt to the person. Like if someone is an asshole. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Like if someone really acts poorly, Mm -hmm. then I would ask my inmates all the time, look, this is an example. If a custody officer comes in and snaps at you, would you feel differently if you knew that he had just found out that his wife was dying from cancer? Mm. Right. Yeah. And to give people the benefit of the doubt and also be curious about why. I had an officer once who really was a bit of an asshole. And then about, I didn't see him for about two years because they rotate in position and came back and he had like a profound personality change. And I was like, all right. And I asked him, hey, the last time I saw you, you were like this. What happened? He goes, well, that is because they took out a you know, five-inch meningioma from my brain that was giving me severe headaches every single day. Wow. Right. right. So when his severe headaches went away, he, he, he was a different person. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. such a great point. Such a great point you bring up because you just it's, don't know what it, people it, are going practice, through. It's practice because most people, if someone, you know, whatever... Actually, if someone snaps at them or says something bad or puts them down, they right away go on the defensive instead of asking themselves, I wonder what has caused that. To me, it's the understanding and the compassion that could certainly be improved in uh, in our country. <laughs> yes. yes. So, and it, it's about compassion and it's about empathy and really looking at the through yeah, the lens and, of what could be going on in their world. Right. And, and, you know, I always tell people with compassion, it's to, it's not only understanding, it's then taking an action to reduce that person's suffering. Oh, yeah. You see, those are the yes. two, because empathy, you can be empathetic, but if you don't do anything, uh, right. That doesn't right. really seem to go that far, but. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about practicing kindness. Yes, yes. And that mm-hmm. it is contagious. You know, I mean, they, there's so much science behind how kindness, you know, is contagious and that we can create this ripple effect. Right. And you know, love it. Well, you've got your marching orders audience. First things first, you've got to go get the book on Amazon, 30 Years Behind Bars by Dr. Karen Gedney. Yes, yes. And, uh, and I hope if they enjoy it, they just tell other people about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And then um, in addition to that, Let's see if we can, for the next week, practice kindness, practice compassion, which um, Dr. Gedney just said is really about what action can we take. It's one thing to be empathetic. It's another to take an action to make that person feel better um, or be better or feel more connected. And then finally, we need to talk about 80s trends. Now, I know in the 80s, you were very busy. You probably didn't have time to be thinking about what to wear on your way to med school, residency, the whole nine yards to the prison. But if you remember, if you could recall any 80s trends that that you liked the most. Well, I I do remember those leg warmer things. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I love a leg warmer. I still have some. <laughs> you know, I, I've always, I mean, I've always liked athletic activity. And and I do remember wearing, you know, the, the stretchy clothes. And then, you know, why the leg warmers, I really don't understand. But I know I, I had them. And then I also remember sort of these baggy sort of pants that were quite colorful that I would like wear when I went to Hawaii or, or like on a vacation or something. I never got into the the major fashion about really clothes or hair because I was too consumed with just being in the library and shoving information into my brain, which now many, which most of it is obsolete. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that is definitely love of learning. And I'm sure that love of learning is in your top via strengths as well. Yes, it it is. (laughs) And then also, are there any particular, if you had time to watch television or movies, what did you have any in particular that you liked? You know, here's the thing. I had to actually look at a list because first of all, and and this is probably hard for people to even imagine, but uh, I did not own a TV. Mm. See, I, I didn't have any money for a TV. So I college, med school, residency, never had one. So I never really watched anything. And and I wasn't one of those people who really listened to a lot of music because I was one of those people, like when I studied, I was in the library. You know, right. And I you couldn't listen to music. It being quiet all the time. So now once in a while, like when it was a summer break, I would go watch a, a movie and it would be wonderful. But I had to look back and find out which one were in the 80s. Yes. And I will say movies like The Breakfast Club. Oh, yes. All right. That one really resonated with me because it had to do with, you know, the underdogs and not being understood, you know, stuff like yes. that. I mean, I, I must say, I really liked those types of movies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, such a good movie. I loved that movie. Well, yeah, I'm re- the music and everything in it, you know, the music was fantastic. Uh, yes. Wonderful. So, uh, Dr. Gedney, I, I am so just feel so much gratitude for you being here on the show with us. And I also am very excited that you're going to come on again with us and talk about all of your work with anti-aging and longevity and, uh, as well as other exciting things that, uh, you did during the pandemic. And then also, the loss of your soulmate, which um, I, I'm very sorry about, but I know we'll touch on that a little bit um, for our next episode. I just need to point out that I am wearing uh, a beautiful pendant necklace that Clifton had made your late husband. And he was not only a brilliant man, but also an artist. Yeah. And uh, we can talk about maybe also the fact, because now in these days of racial and social injustice, that I was a tall blonde and I was married to a six foot two muscular black male who uh, yes. <laughs> was a whole other, you know, piece of my life dealing 100% in type of stuff, especially in the prison, you know, wow. which was racist. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I would love to talk about that and a lot of great information and powerful stories. So Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Gedney, and um, have a wonderful day. And until next time. And it was wonderful, Patricia. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. We want to hear from you. 
first of all, tell us how these totally rad stories have inspired you. If you have a story with an 80s song inspiration, we want to hear it. You think this podcast is like totally tubular? Well, we would love your review. Stay connected with us on Podopolo and download the app today. Visit me at www.patriciafreiberg.com. Thank you, and we look forward to a double boost of inspiration next Motivational Music Monday.